You know, tradition is uh, a funny sort of thing. It has a way of sneaking up on you and dominating you without realizing it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we decided arbitrarily to change our normal seating arrangement around the table at night. I got tired of sitting with my back to the window, and I decided that I would move around on the other side of the table so I could look out into the backyard. So before anyone else got to the table that evening, I sat down. And uh, Joshua showed up, and he said, uh, you're sitting in my seat. And I said, who's that? Did you sit over there? And he said, over there? And I said, yeah, you, you sit over there. That's not my seat. And I said, well, what difference does it make? You know, it's just a seat. It's not wired. Sit down. And my goodness, his lip quivered, and you thought I had ordered him to sit in the electric chair. It just, it absolutely ruined the whole meal. He, he would hardly talk to any of us. And uh, everybody was uh, completely put out of sorts because we altered a very deep-seated tradition. It uh, just occurred to me the other day that I have, for 45 years, put my sock on my left foot first. I always put my sock on the left foot. I'm sure if I ever put it on the right foot first, I'd limp all day. That's, a, that's another long-standing, deeply cherished tradition, Lee. Now, uh, don't look so smug and pious because you do the same thing. You have all sorts of traditions in your family and, and uh, your own personal life. And they're no problem. Traditions are simply a part of life. Unless we grant to a, tra to a tradition the position of, of ultimate authority. When it becomes absolute, then we've misused the tradition. Now, that's the concern that Jesus has in the passage we want to look at this morning in Matthew 15. In his controversy with the Pharisees, it's very clear that the Lord's concern centers around the preoccupation of the Pharisees with their traditions, which caused them to violate the Old Testament scriptures, actually to, in, to invalidate certain clearly stated principles in the Old Testament. Now let's begin reading with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, where we get the setting to the uh, story. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, the Lord was right at the end of his Galilean campaign. And as we know from John, people were leaving him in large numbers. And uh, the religious establishment in Jerusalem was doing everything that it could to invalidate his ministry. And so they came down from Jerusalem, actually a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin there, in order to raise this issue of tradition, because they felt that if they could somehow attack Jesus at the point of a deep-seated national uh, heritage, a great national tradition, then they could discredit him, and, people, and more people would leave him, and his ministry would, be, uh, uh, would have no impact on the, on the people in Galilee. So that's why they raised the question, why do your disciples eat their meals without washing their hands. Now, if that sounds like the question you often ask your kids when they come to the dinner table, it's not. It's an entirely different issue. The problem is not uh, dirt on, on the hands. It's a matter of ceremony, uh, of ceremony. The Jews had very elaborate washing rituals, which they carried out before every meal. It's actually rooted in the Old Testament. 
Back in Mosaic Law, you have certain uh, regulations governing the washings that the priests were to carry out before they uh, conducted services in the temple. But uh, the, the Jews of Jesus' day had taken those regulations that applied to priests and had made them applicable to, to everyone. They were obligatory. Everyone had to wash their hands in a certain way. And the thing was very carefully prescribed. Even the amount of water that was used. They could use a, an eggshell and a half of water. It had to be pure water. They washed with their hands in a certain position, and then they lowered their hands to permit the water to drip off so they wouldn't be defiled from the dirty water they'd washed their hands with, and so forth. And endless regulations. Everything was choreographed. They had to do it just precisely so. And it was this sort of thing that concerns the Lord. It wasn't a question of hygiene at all. It was a question of ceremonial cleansing. Now what the Lord does is turn the tables on the Pharisee. They question him. But he doesn't immediately answer the question they raise. He raises another question, which is particularly embarrassing for them. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He says to Jesus and the disciples, Why do you violate our traditions? Jesus says, Why do you use your traditions to violate Scripture? Okay. And you have to understand that the Lord and his disciples were not violating Scripture. They were not lawbreakers. They were obedient to the Old Testament. It was a matter of tradition. They were violating a, a deep-seated, deeply uh, cherished uh, uh, tradition in Judah. Now, you have to understand something of the Pharisees. I told my class a couple of Tuesday nights ago that, uh, that if we had been living in Jesus' time, we would probably all be Pharisees. And that's true. We would be. The, uh, the Pharisees were the people in Israel who loved the Word. Their scribes were were biblical scholars. They they scrutinized the biblical text and they studied it carefully and they taught the people. And uh, they had a, they held the scriptures in high regard. They had a very high view of inspiration. In contrast to the Sadducees, who were rationalists, they were like the more liberal branch of of the church today. Who do not re- regard the scriptures with any real respect. But the Pharisees did. They loved the word. And they taught the scriptures. That's why I say if, if we had belonged uh, back in those times, we would have been Pharisees, because we too love the scriptures. But the problem was they had come to revere their teachers and their teaching as much as the scriptures. They had a long-standing teaching tradition that went all the way back to Ezra. That's when the scribe tradition began. And a great body of literature had been built up. It's called the Mishnah which was a collection of rabbinic interpretation. And they believed by Jesus' time that this body of interpretation went all the way back to Moses and therefore was as inspired as Scripture. And so they held these authoritative interpretations to be just as binding as the rest of, uh, as, as the Word of God. Now, it may be that we're in danger of doing the same sort of thing. You see, we, uh, we also have a rich heritage of teaching, of interpretation of Scripture, which we may be in danger of making absolute. Now, that's what the Lord is concerned about here. Therefore, this passage has uh, is pertinent to us. Now, in verses 4 and 5, the Lord illustrates his charge. In verse 3, he says, You have transgressed the commandment of God for the sake of 
of your tradition. Now in verse 4, he gives an illustration of that transgression, how they have used tradition in order to avoid obedience to Scripture. For God said, and here he will quote the Old Testament, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. Now you'll recognize this quotation. It's a composite from the Old Testament. The first statement comes from Exodus 20, on Honor your father and mother. The second from Exodus 21. Don't curse father or mother. And then the penalty, which was death. This was a capital offense. It was a very serious thing to dishonor or disregard your parents. That's the clear teaching of the Old Testament with regard to our responsibility to parents. We are to honor them to the end of our days. Even after we leave home, we are to honor them, regard them highly. The Hebrew word actually means consider them to be heavy. So see, kids, your parents are heavy dudes. They're weighty. They're to be regarded uh, as as authorities and as responsible uh, people. You see, with weight, we're to attribute to them that sort of weight and respect them highly. The contrastive parallel is don't speak against them. Don't curse them. There the Hebrew word is treat them lightly. It's the same word that's used in, uh, in Genesis 12 where God promises Abraham, he who curses you, I will curse. Well, two, actually, two different words for curse there. The first is, he who treats you lightly, he who is indifferent to you, I will curse. I'll make sterile. I'll remove your fertility, your blessing. See? That's the first word that's, uh, that's used also in Exodus 21. So, in these two statements, you have the sum and substance of our responsibility to our parents. We are to regard them highly and honor them and respect them and attribute weight to them. And we are not to take them lightly. Not to ignore them. Neglect them. You see, that's... That's the teaching of the Old Testament about filial responsibility, our responsibility as children. There's no question about that. See, the Jews would not deny it. But they had a loophole in their law that permitted them to get around that uh, that command. And uh, he describes uh, that uh, procedure in verses 5 and 6. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father and mother anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He then need not honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, that uh, custom is obscure to us. We don't have it in our culture. But it was one that was well known to the Jews of Jesus' day, and it occurs on their books, their statute books, in the Mishnah. Any possession that you have could be uh, a real asset, real property, could be money, any, anything that you possess could be designated korban. It's an Aramaic word that means a gift, a gift to God. And notice the New American Standard translation places in italics, to God, a gift to God. And that's a, that's a good understanding of the meaning of this term. You could take any piece of property and dedicate it to God. You could then still use that piece of property. You could even sell it and reinvest the assets, but no one else could put their hands on it. They couldn't touch it because it was dedicated to God. You just went down to the temple and you told the priest, this is Korban, and uh, that would uh, then take it out of anyone else's hands who might be pro- who might profit from it, such as a needy parent, for instance. And evidently, certain unscrupulous Jews were using this loophole in the law uh, to forego their responsibility to their parents. They were not willing to give money to needy parents. They would get it out of their hands by this Korban uh, custom. Now, let me illustrate. 
Now let's suppose, for example, that Carolyn's mother, Clara, uh, runs out of money. She, she won't, but if she did, uh, we as, as her children would have a, a responsibility to take care of her. See, we would feel that very keenly. Now let's suppose she came to our door and she was weak and wan and obviously hadn't eaten for days and, uh, she didn't have any money. And uh, the only money I had was in a savings account, which I had been saving to buy a jet boat. And now I'm torn, you see. I have certain responsibilities to Carolyn's mother, but I have also a great attachment to that money because it's going to purchase something I've been wanting for a long time. So the Corban custom comes to my rescue. I go to Chris Riddell and I say, Hey, Chris, I have decided to buy a jet boat and I'm going to give that jet boat to the high school department. They can use it to make river runs and water ski and all sorts of things. It'll stay in my garage. And it's my jet boat, and I'll use it, but it is Corban. It's dedicated to God. And then I would say, Clara, you just have to tough it. Now, that's the sort of, that's the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about here. And it actually happened. It's on their books. They're even... Uh, there, there's some argumentation among uh, priests of that day discussing how they should handle this sort of situation. And the agreement was that if a thing was declared korban, no matter how indigent your parents were, no matter how needy they were, they could not have the money. And that, that sort of thing was happening. That's why Jesus says you've invalidated the law by your tradition. Now you'll notice that he follows that illustration with an even... Uh, more stern rebuke, verse 7, you hypocrites. I think the, someone should have told the Lord that that's why he never got the Outstanding Young Man Award in Jerusalem. Uh, inclined to call a spade a spade, and it forever got him into trouble. But there was a reason for it. The Lord believed in speaking truth with the weak and the gentle and those, uh, the weak and the troubled and those that were struggling. He was always gentle, always. But with hypocrites, he was always very straightforward, brutally frank. And because I know the, the Lord's methods are always redemptive, I think the reason for doing, to, for, for handling problems in this way, uh, are valid. What he wanted to do is unmask the hypocrisy of the individual. Because by cutting through the hypocrisy, right down to the heart of the issue, he could get the person to reveal themselves. They would unmask themselves. They would get angry. They would speak out and people would see them for what they are and they would see themselves for what they are because the Lord knows he can't really heal us until we come out in the open. As long as we're hiding sin, uh, as long as we're hypocrites, nothing can be done for us. So he was trying to get these men to come out into the open and that's why he was so seemingly harsh at times. I uh, remember years ago Ray Stedman telling me a story about Steve Newman. Uh, Ray took Steve with him to a particular certain Midwest uh, city for a pastor's conference, and they met in a, in a large uh, building there, a large church, actually a complex, very uh, uh, very uh, lavish, expensive structures that had been built in this particular town. And in the course of the, uh, of the conference, they, the pastor, the senior pastor, was taking the conferees through the building. And as Ray described his monologue, it was kind of a self-serving thing, and and he was pointing out all the the uh, the beauty of the building and 
And it was obvious that millions of dollars had gone into the construction of this building and the furnishing and ornamentation of it. And it really troubled Steve. But as they made their tour through the building, the other pastors were ooing and aahing and responding as they thought the pastor would want them to respond. At the end of the tour, the pastor looked at Steve and he noticed that he had not been suitably impressed. And so he said, young man, what, uh, what do you think of the building? And Steve looked him in the eye and said very courteously, Sir, the, the whole thing is too lavish. It's too costly. It's a, it's a misuse of God's funds. Money ought to go into people rather than into things. And he just very graciously laid the whole thing out. And uh, Ray said you could have heard a pin drop. The man's jaw dropped. And apparently he got very angry and frustrated and flustered and he began to give a very defensive uh, reaction trying to justify this vast uh, expenditure. Well, Steve shot, hit home. See? He was right. Steve was gracious, he was loving, but he spoke the truth. And that's what the Lord did. He didn't play games with people. When he saw that hypocrisy, he spoke the truth. And often that resulted in the person tearing off the mask and revealing himself, himself for what he really was. Now, there's some question about the meaning of this term hypocrite, but there are some people who believe that the term actually means to speak or to proclaim out from under something. It seems to be the etymology of the word. And it may be a reference to the practice of actors who on the Greek stage used masks and they spoke out from under a mask. Uh, in, on, in Greek drama... Only men played the parts, so if they had to play the part of a woman, they, they wore a woman's mask, and they spoke out from under that mask. The mask didn't accord with reality, didn't reflect their true personality or intentions or even their gender. It was, it was a fake presentation. And that's what hypocrisy is. It's speaking out from under a mask, you see. And what the Lord is trying to do is to get these people to be honest, and so he pulls the mask away to reveal them for what they are. Hypocrite! He says. And then he spells out their hypocrisy by a quotation from the book of Isaiah. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. That's interesting. Isaiah prophesied in the eighth century, long, long before this, this period of time. And yet the Lord says he was talking about you. Because all through history, there have been people like this who try to cover up the evil in their own hearts by play acting. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. Now, if you stop and think about that quotation for a moment, you'll come to this conclusion. What the Lord is saying is this. I know your hearts are far away from me because you accord absolute authority to what, what men teach. You see that? You teach his doctrine, that is, dogma, absolute authoritative statements, the precepts of men. You see what he's saying? We don't like to have our, our evil unmasked. We don't like to be told what we're really like. I don't like that. That hurts. I don't want anybody to tear the mask off. And that's exactly what the Word of God does. It just penetrates our phoniness and it and it gets right down to where we really are and reveals us for what we are. And therefore, I'll take the teaching of men anytime over the Word of God. And that's why Jesus says, you're committed to tradition. 
You'll do the outward things. You'll follow the outward rituals and regulations, the rigmarole, but you will not let the Word of God sit in judgment on the evil of your hearts. You see what he's saying? And that's our tendency. All of it. We have certain evangelical traditions, a particular kind of Bible that we use, whether it's an RSV or a King James or a Schofield Bible or something else. And as long as we have the right Bible, then we're, we feel that we're behaving properly. We have a certain way of dressing whatever that may be. We have a certain way of arranging ourselves in the service and a certain order of service. And as long as we feel we keep the outward external regulations, then we feel everything's all right. But when we turn to the Word, we discover it's not. James says the Word is like a mirror that shows us for what we really are. And that hurts. And so I'm inclined, if I'm a hypocrite, I'm inclined to turn away from the Word and cling tenaciously to my tradition. And Jesus says, that's what Isaiah said about the people of his day, and that's what's characteristic of you. And then turning from the Pharisees, he speaks to the multitude in verse 10, and he says to them, listen, hear and understand, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now that's the answer to the question that the Pharisees raised earlier. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Jesus said it's very simple. That's one tradition we ignore. Because it's not what comes in from the outside that defiles you. It's what comes, it's what originates within. And therefore, no external ritual or worship, nothing external is going to cleanse the heart. Only the Word of God can reach into the inner man and deal with the heart. So the rest of it's just rigmarole. It doesn't amount to anything. And that's why Jesus says we don't do it. And, of course, what he does with that statement is just sweep away all the tradition of the Pharisees in this area. Page after page of their literature swept away by this one statement. And that made them angry. And the disciples come back to Jesus and say, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement, implied in in their response is, you know, you've made these these fellows mad. We need them. We need to develop a policy of detente here with these guys. They're important. They're down in Jerusalem calling the shots, and you're ignoring them. You need to build some bridges to these people. And the Lord's response is characteristic. He answered and said, Every plant, which my heavenly Father did not plant, shall be rooted up. Leave them alone. I have better things to do, he says, than try to correct people who don't want to be corrected. Try to heal people who don't want to be healed. The needs are too great. I'm going to do the things that the Father has called me to do. Let's just leave them alone. God will take care of them in his own way and in his own time. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us then. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. 
but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You see, that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 2. No man-made religion has any value, whatever, in correcting our self-indulgent spirit. You can follow all the traditions. You can go to church whenever the doors are open. You can sing the Gloria Patri and say the Apostles' Creed. You can carry the right kind of Bible bound in the right way. You can memorize the right scriptures. Externally, you can have all the behavior that's expected of us evangelicals and still miss the whole point. And you can be irascible and mean and ornery at home and unloving and crooked in your business and unkind to your children and unthoughtful to your mate. And you've missed the whole point. You see what Jesus is saying? These external things don't matter. What matters is the heart. What God wants is a heart that's obedient to Him and the display of His character out in the world. A loving, gracious display of the character of Christ Himself. That's the real issue. And religion and external ritual can't affect that change. Only the Word of God can penetrate the heart and change it. Now what can we learn from this controversy with with the Pharisees? Well, the important thing is to not be a Pharisee. The essence of Pharisaism was that they exalted tradition over Scripture. They were not committed to the Word of God. They wouldn't let the Word of God play upon their heart and change them. They substituted for it tradition. And therefore, we need to avoid making the same error. Now, I've tried to think through this past week, where, where am I Pharisaical? And uh, we all are, to some extent. Several things occurred to me. One is I think there is a tendency among us as evangelicals to attribute ultimate authority to teachers. Someone we hear on the radio or a tape that we listen to, particularly if the man has a string of degrees behind his name or he's been to the right seminary, Dallas Seminary or Western or or Multnomah Bible uh, Institute or whatever, then we're inclined to listen to him and accept everything he says in a very uncritical way, uh, very uncritical way, and assume that whatever he says is absolute. If we do so, then we fall into exactly the same error that the Pharisees fell into. Now, there's no, uh, you know, cynicism is not a Christian virtue. There's no real merit in being critical and cynical. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes all things. That is, our, our approach to everyone ought to be uh, positive and hopeful. And we ought to be teachable and, and believing in that sense. But we also need to be wise as serpents. We need to be analytical about what we hear. And when someone says something, when they teach it, then the question we ought to ask ourselves is, is it in here? If it is, then it's absolute, binding. I must do it. Part of my obligation to Christ is Lord. But if it's not in here, then it's optional. Maybe good advice. Might make a lot of sense. But it's not binding on me. See? Now, this is difficult for us to do. And some people feel that this is a violation of the Lord's word. Don't judge lest you be judged. But the Lord is concerned there with about a, uh, He's concerned there with a condemning spirit. Not uh, not an analytical approach to people. I just this past week heard a man 
whom I regard very highly. I respect his teaching very much. Excellent teacher. Who was uh, teaching a group of people and he presented a number of criteria which he said those folks could use to make a, a certain decision that Christians have to make. And I listened to him. And many of the things that he said were excellent. Right out of Scripture. But of the ten or eleven uh, criteria that he established, two or three were opinion. That's all they were. And as a matter of fact, in this case, political opinion. And uh, not found anywhere in Scripture. In fact, Christians would disagree uh, on this particular issue. Uh, both equally committed to the authority of Scripture. They fall on both sides of the issue. And yet, without meaning to, I'm sure, he listed with this list of biblical absolutes, two or three things that were not absolutes at all. Therefore, we need to be discerning. We need to respect our teachers and listen to them. But don't accept what they have to say as as final and authoritative unless it's in the Word of God. This is the authority, not any human teacher. Luke says that's a noble attitude. The people in Berea were more noble, he says, than the folks that lived down in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. And the things he's talking about were the things that the Apostle Paul taught. So these Berean believers, whenever Paul taught, they got out their Old Testament scroll and they said, if it's in there, I'll believe it. If it's not, I won't. And that's the attitude that we ought to have. Anything short of that is basically Pharisaism. The second thing I occurred to me this week is that we must not allow tradition to inveigh against truth. That is, we must never let any tradition put us in a position where we disobey a clear statement of Scripture. One place where I think we do that, frankly, is in our Sunday morning worship services. We have an evangelical tradition that goes way, way back that establishes precisely how we worship. And frankly, most of it is just tradition. That's all. It's not based on Scripture at all. If you look at the New Testament and the way the early Christians worshipped, it was really quite simple. They, uh, in, in the Roman world, Sunday was not a day off. I'm sure you appreciate that. And they worshipped on the first day of the week. So they had to get up early in the morning before they went to work to worship. So uh, they didn't dress up the way we do. Coats and ties. I'm still looking for the guy that invented the tie. I want to choke him. Dress up. They wore their grubbies because they had to go to work. And they didn't meet in a building. They didn't have buildings until the late 3rd century A.D. They met in homes. They met in somebody's backyard. They met in the catacombs. They met wherever they could meet. Any place that sheltered them from the elements. They didn't have a pulpit and a piano and an organ and hymn books and chairs arranged uh, in rows. They just sat around on the floor or wherever they were as a family would sit. They didn't come all gussied up. But I look at us today. You see? Furthermore, their order of service was very simple. They began with the Apostles' Doctrine. That is, someone taught the Scriptures. And when I, I say someone, I don't mean that it was exclusively one person. There was multiple input. It's clear from 1 Corinthians 14. A number of people taught from the Word. You get different perspectives on the truth. And then Luke says there were prayers plural. There wasn't a pastoral prayer. One man didn't lead the whole congregation in prayer. People stood, prayed where they were for one another's needs. 
And then there was a sharing in common of hurts and struggles and victories. They shared these things and supported one another and prayed for one another. And then they they had a, a, a meal together, a love feast, patterned after the Lord's feast with his disciples. Very, very simple, but very helpful. Now look what we've done. We come to a building that's a special church building that we've come to regard in some way as especially sacred. We even refer to this room as the sanctuary. It's not. You're the sanctuary. The Spirit of God dwells in you, not in this building. When you're gone, the Holy Spirit's no more here than He is outside. It's just a building. Keep the rain off sometimes. That's all it is. And our worship is so regulated and so formal. And one or two people preempt all the time. And you just have to sit there and listen. I can't think of anything worse. We need to all be sharing together, you see. That's what a family does. Suppose I came, I went home tonight and I said, all right, we're going to have a family meal. Everybody come dressed in your best bib and tucker. And uh, we'd all sit in assigned seats and we would begin at 6 o'clock. And I would spend the whole time doing all the talking. I just filibuster all the way through the meal. And everybody else sat there. And nobody said anything. Nobody contributed anything. No one shared what they had done through the day. And when they got through, they'd all think, man, this isn't a family. This is a church service. Any of you see Wimbledon this last, you see yesterday? I, I thought, you know, here were all these Britishers sitting up there in their suits and ties. And it was just blustering hot. And they're all sitting up there with their blazers and coats and ties on, their ties, sitting in a, in a, in the stands, very correct, watching two people get all the exercise. And I thought, that's the church. That's what we've become. And I think in so doing, we've hurt ourselves. It's all tradition, see. Now I'm not saying we need to just tear everything up and throw all these traditions out. But we do need to evaluate any tradition in the light of the Word of God. To what extent is this tradition causing me to be less effective as a member of the body of Christ? And if it's causing that, it ought to go. We ought to be ruthless. I don't care how deep-seated or long-standing or highly cherished that tradition is. We need to be willing to put it away. The third thing I would say, and this is last, is that we need to allow the Word to deal with our hearts. And anything that keeps the Word from playing upon our heart and changing us needs to be put away. Our religious uh, structure, our structure, our worship service, any of these things, any traditions that inveigh against the capacity of the Word to reach into our hearts and change us, we need to be willing to put, them, put those things away. And by that, I even mean the theological structures that we develop. You know, we as evangelicals have a very well-defined eschatological theology. Now, some of you don't even know what that term means, and I don't, it doesn't make a bit of difference. It just means future things. And we all want to get our little timelines drawn, you know, so we know exactly what's going to happen in the future. And that's all right. The Scripture tells us about those issues, but we should not be preoccupied. Because the argument of Scripture all the way through is seeing that these things are going to happen this way, what kind of person should you be now? That's the issue. And you know, we can have all of our timelines drawn accurately and we know exactly when the Lord is coming. And by the way, have you ever noticed how Christians will flock to hear someone teach 
a, a book like Daniel or Revelation, or if they hold a meeting on future things, boy, they will turn up by the hundreds to listen. Because we're all intrigued by that sort of thing. But the real issue is not what's going to happen then, but what's happening now. And we can have it all straight then. But are we letting the Word of God sit in judgment on our hearts now? That's the real issue. And you'll notice the things that Jesus uh, refers to. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. Just talking about people behind their back. Being critical of them. Being unloving. Being insensitive. Indifferent to human need. Those are the great issues. And we need to let the Word speak to us on that level. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed. Forgive us, Father, for our preoccupation with the wrong things, our tendency to let externals rule our life and keep us from from opening our hearts up to the truth where it really matters. We ask that our lives would reflect your character in our homes and in our businesses, the way we deal with with our customers and our competitors, our reaction to our neighbors, the kind of time that we spend with our children, the spirit that we have when we come home, and our willingness to put away our moodiness and irritability, just the general ugliness that we often display in our families. Teach us, Lord, to put first things first and permit the Word of God to speak directly to those issues that that you want us to face. And thank you, because we have a risen Lord, we have the power to change, that we can, by relying upon you, manifest the character that you expect. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.